Now, I know this is kind of a strange thing. Oh, I should say a word about the table. So let me just say that first. We do have a table back there. Not a lot of things on it, but we do have uh, almost all the uh, music that has been produced by Baptist College of Ministry, Falls Baptist Church. And uh, one of us will uh, be around, and certainly if we're not right there at the table, we'll just uh, get one of us, and we'd be glad to tell you the different CDs. Uh, uh, many of those CDs, I, I, don't, I, I don't know if somebody's, do you have a favorite? Probably my the favorite is the kids' CD. And uh, anybody listen to the, the children's CD produced, okay, by Falls Baptist? It's uh, probably my favorite. Uh, they announced they're going to do a kids' CD, and I thought, oh, man, don't do that. And I didn't say that. I think a lot of things I don't say. And uh, the older you get it as evangelist, you, you say less than what you think, okay? But um, I didn't say anything. Then it came out. I was blown away. I'm thinking, how did that happen? So uh, they put a lot of work into that, and it will encourage your hearts. I know the young people took it seriously, and there was a lot of prayer put into that CD. It's really, I think, all of them. But um, so they got a children's choir. It's fully orchestrated, and uh, that's a great one for young people. Just encourage your own young people to sing. And I know already you have a spirit of singing here in your congregation, so that's the one I would recommend. They also have uh, uh, piano CDs with the cello if you like more of a pensive type music that doesn't have words, that you just like to have that atmosphere. So there's um, uh, the cello and uh, piano, and there's flute and piano as well. So several different kind of CDs. Uh, I have a lot of Christmas CDs at this time of year. That may not be what you're looking for, but uh, there's several Christmas CDs that have been very popular and encourage uh, different folks. But I'd be glad to tell you about those things. So I'll just kind of highlight the music tonight, say a word about the table as we go on. Uh, there's different things out there. You're certainly welcome to take. Okay, Second Samuel, or First Samuel, excuse me, chapter number 12. And I shouldn't tell you this tonight. This is bad to tell you on the very first night you come on a weeknight. But I got bad news for you. Actually, it's good news for you. But I'm going to preach on a really big sin tonight. Can I do that tonight? Is that okay with you? I'm going to preach on a big sin. And it might be. I don't know if it's the biggest sin in this church, but it might be. A lot of churches I preach in, I find this is the biggest sin. So we're going to preach on it tonight. Is that okay? Now, I haven't talked to your pastor to try to get an idea of what the sin might be. I'm just preaching because... Um, as an evangelist, you kind of get a little, little uh, pulse on the movement, and this might be, hopefully it's not, but it might be. And I want to preach on it. Hang on, here it is, the sin of prayerlessness. The sin of prayerlessness. I want to look at it theologically, then practically. So if you have your Bibles, 1 Samuel chapter number 12, I'd like you to look at verse 23. This is a cousin message to what we dealt with last night. Moreover, as for me, this is Samuel speaking, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord. In ceasing to pray for you. Have you ever read a verse of scripture and after you read it thinking, that's not what I think it would say. You know what I would think this verse would say? God forbid that I should sin against you in ceasing to pray for you. But it doesn't say that. It says, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. Now, these people needed prayer and they knew it. They had asked for a king and that was not in God's plan. They were rejecting the theocracy that God had set up and... And God said to Samuel, okay, if you want a king, give it to him, but they won't be real happy that uh, their request uh, that their, uh, that request was granted. So I gave him the, re the request, and then, of course, he shows his divine displeasure here. And the people, of course, are concerned. And that's when Samuel makes this statement. I'm going to pray for you. Because I don't want to sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. So here's the question at the outset of the message. Why is prayerlessness a sin against the Lord? Well, you say, preacher, I know. Because the Bible says pray without ceasing, so if you don't do it, you're sinning against God, you're breaking his command. Is that true? Does God tell us to pray without ceasing? And the answer is, yes. 
Well, sure he does. By the way, if you've ever thought about this, I'm just a little parentheses here. Have you ever read that verse, pray without ceasing, and say that's impossible? I mean, you've got to eat. You've got to sleep. I mean, how can you pray without ceasing? Years ago, I was hearing a preacher, and he said something that helped me. He said this, prayer is the breath of dependence. That really is true, because if you're depending upon God, you're going to pray. There's no other way about it. So I flipped it around. I thought, you know what? If prayer is the breath of dependence, then dependence is wordless prayer. And it hit me. You can depend without ceasing. You can go to bed at night depending on God. You wake up in the morning depending on God. You can sit down for a meal depending on God. I think that's what that verse is talking about because dependence is wordless prayer. Dependence is saying, God, I need you all the time. Okay, well, that's not my message. That was free. Uh, Because you came Monday night, I gave you a free thing there. Okay, but here it is. Uh, You say, okay, preacher, uh, prayerlessness is sin because we're breaking uh, God's command. Well, that's true. But I don't believe that's the primary reason Prayerlessness is a sin against God. Well, you say, preacher, I know what it is. Prayerlessness is an affront to God. It's an insult to God. I mean, after all, if we don't pray, we're saying we don't need God. I heard somebody say this. I like this. Prayerlessness is a declaration of independence. And when we say we don't don't pray, we say, God, I don't need you. And certainly that would be an affront to God. Isn't that an insult? The Bible says, woe to them that go down to Egypt for help and trust in horses and chariots. In other words... They went down to the world, and they went down to worldly methodology, and instead of trusting God, what an insult to God, what an affront to God. We do that today. In fact, I think some churches do that. (laughs) They go to Madison Avenue to try and find out how to run a church instead of going to the Bible. That's an insult to Almighty God. Okay, so there's no doubt about this, no doubt about it. Uh, Prayerlessness is an insult to God. It's an affront to God, so that's why it's a sin against God. Well, that's true. But I don't believe that's the primary reason prayerlessness is a sin against God. Hang on. Fasten your seatbelts. Here it is. This is going to be rough. Prayerlessness is a sin against God because it limits God. It limits God. You say, preacher, how in the world can you limit an omnipresent, omniscient, all-powerful God? How in the world can you limit a God like that? Well, here's what the Bible says in Psalm 78, verse 41. Yea, they turned back and tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. The Bible tells us that the children of Israel limited God. If you study the chapter, there is only one conclusion you can come up with, and that is they limited God because of unbelief. Unbelief, no doubt about it. So limiting God is possible. Now, you say, how does that happen? Okay, it's like this. When God sets up the rules, he plays by the rules he sets up. Now, the devil doesn't. God does. It's kind of like the political party system we have. One party plays by the rules and the other doesn't, okay? You can figure out which one is which, okay? But anyway, I'm just teasing, okay? Just trying to keep you awake on a Monday night here. But anyway, okay, so now think about it. You say, preacher, what do you mean God plays by the rules, okay? When God gave the Great Commission, who did he give it to? Did he give it to angels? (laughs) No, he gave it to believers. Could I say, you know what believers are? Human beings. Can I just be honest for a moment? If I was God, and all of us are glad that none of us are, but if I was God and going to give something as important as the Great Commission uh, to the human race or to believers in the human race, I would have had a plan B. You know why? Because I'm pretty sure that those human beings are going to fumble the football on the deal, and so I'm going to go to Gabriel and say, hey, Gabriel, get all the angels ready because just in case, I might have to dispatch you down there to preach the gospel. Did God do that? No, see, God gave us 
the Great Commission. And I'm not, I want you to see this. God does not have a plan B. Now, can I say this carefully? I believe, based on the spirit of Scripture, because God's not willing that any should perish, in every generation, God has a way for the whole world to hear the gospel. Every generation. Now, you say, well, preacher, if God has a way for the whole world to hear the gospel, why hasn't the whole world heard the gospel? Well, I don't know where I heard this statistic, but I think it's an American statistic. But 98% of all believers will never lead anybody to Jesus Christ. Okay, so if you gave believers the job to get the gospel out, and 98% of them wouldn't do the job, pretty good chance the job's not going to get done. Now, I realize in other countries I think it's higher. But my point is simply this. When God gave us the Great Commission, it was a very solemn responsibility because he doesn't have a plan B. We kind of, I was being facetious about it, but it's very serious when we come right down to it. There is no uh, other option. So if we don't, could I put it this way? One of the things that grieves me, and I'll be honest with you, working with young people, sometimes I'll see a young man or a young lady, and particularly I'm, I'm working with young men, and, and, and you're, pretty, you're pretty sure God's called them to preach. I, I, can't, I can't say that I know that. For certain, but there's just a sense you get. I think God's called that kid to preach. And then you watch them stiff-arm God, walk out into life and do what they want to do. And I'll tell you, friends, it grieves me. And don't miss this. I'm not just grieved because they're going to miss out on God's best, and they will. The greater grief is this, I think, of how many hundreds or thousands of people will go to hell because they didn't do God's will. That's what strikes me. I've seen very gifted young men that God had clearly called to preach. They had a gift. They had already had supernatural anointing on their life who for whatever reason stiff-armed God, walked out and did their own thing. And I will tell you, when I th every time that's happened, I have grieved, not just over their destroyed life, but I have grieved over the fact that there are people who will not hear the gospel. See, every one of you young men, uh, people out here, you know, really all of us, being in God's will is a big deal. Because <laughs> God has a plan. And uh, we're a part of that plan. Every one of us is, is a part of that plan. Whether or not we're in so-called full-time Christian work, or whether or not we're in uh, secular work, it doesn't matter what kind of work you're in, all of us should be full-time Christians. What do you think? Okay, so here it is. Um, that's just an illustration. Okay, so God has given us the Great Commission, and if we don't do it, there's not another option. Okay, now, you say, what does that have to do with prayer? Okay, it was an illustration to help you understand that God sets things up, and he doesn't violate what he sets up. In other words, we don't see angels on the street corners preaching the gospel, do we? Now, could God do that? Well, he could. He's got the power to do that. But that's the way Satan knows that. He knows that he gave it to the Great Commission to us, and he's not going to violate that. See, he knows. Okay, say, so what are you talking about, preacher? Okay, let's go back to prayer. How does God get his will done on earth? You ever think about that? Remember when Jesus was teaching the disciples to pray? Here's what he said. He said, when you pray, here's, here's what you need to pray. And he gave us the Lord's Prayer, our Father which art in heaven. It's a wonderful help and uh, understanding prayer. But I, I could be wrong on this, but often in a Greek or, or Hebrew literature, uh, they, would, they would organize things different than we organize in English. In other words, in English, it's point one, point two, point three, point four, kind of like that's how we do it in English. But sometimes in those uh, cultures, they would have a pyramid. And the first thing and the last thing kind of correspond, and it kind of stair steps up, so that the middle is actually the apex. And I believe that may be what the Lord's Prayer is, and the apex is this. Here's what you need to pray. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment, and I'm not trying to trick you here. Was God's will today perfectly done in heaven? And the answer is, yes. yeah, yeah, it was perfectly done today. No problem up there. 
Okay, now obviously it's not God's will when people sin. So is God's will perfectly done on earth today? And the answer would be no. no. So why would God ask us to pray that, what's, that his will would be done on earth like it is in heaven? Because that's the way he gets his will done on earth. See, can I say this carefully? There's not a person in this room whose prayer life is unimportant. I don't care if you've been saved five minutes or if you've been saved 50 years. Your prayer life is not unimportant. In other words, I believe, I can't prove this, but I think God has a way for his will to be perfectly done on planet Earth. But you know what the problem is? A lot of Christians don't cooperate. And I'm talking in their prayer life. So let me give you a verse of scripture that I think verifies this. 1 John chapter uh, 5, verses 14 and 15, here's what it says. And this is the confidence that we have in him. That if, if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he hears whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. God says you can pray and know you've been heard. The answer is uh, you got the answer before you got the answer. But you know you got the answer. In fact, in a real sense, you have the answer. You just can't see it yet. And that, I believe, is what he's saying. This is the confidence that we have in him. How, how do you do that? Number one, ask according to his will. Number two, know you've asked according to his will, thus no. Well, he heard me, because God says if you ask anything according to his will, you hear me. And if you know that he heard me, well, how do you know he heard me? Because well, I asked according to his will. Then God says you know you've got the answer. So number one, ask according to your will, or his will. Number two, know you've asked according to his will, and thus no, God heard me. And number three, know you've got the answer. That's how you have confidence in praying. Now, is it wrong to pray when you don't know God's will? Well, absolutely not. Do you remember the leper? Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst. And you know what, friends? You know what Jesus said? I will. If thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And Jesus said, I will. Be thou clean. It's not wrong to play big prayers. I prayed a lot of big prayers, and it evidently wasn't God's will. Lord, if you want to, you could do this. Lord, if you want to do this, you could do this. You know what God says sometimes? I will. So it's not wrong to pray when we do not know God's will. It's not wrong to sincerely pray, Lord, what's your will is? Well, whatever your will is, you could do this if you wanted to. Pray big prayers. Can I encourage you to do this? Pray really big prayers that only God could do, uh, even if you don't know God's will. Just say, Lord, if thou wilt, thou couldst. Even on healing. Lord, if you wanted to, you could raise that person up. Even if the doctors say they have a 0% chance of survival. It's not bad to say, Lord, if you wanted to, you could. It's never wrong to pray that way. Because every once in a while, you know what God's going to say? Yeah, that is my will. Okay. Be thou clean or be thou healed or whatever. Okay. So we understand that. But there are another kind of praying is confident praying. We know what God's will is. So we pray according to God's will. And when we pray according to God's will, boom. We know we got it. That's how God gets his will done. Now, let me give you a personal illustration that I know is going to raise some questions. And I probably shouldn't do this. But I do want to get you thinking here tonight. Back many years ago, of course, my wife and I got married 35 years ago, almost 36. And um, our first 11 years of marriage, we had five miscarriages. Uh, they're all in the first trimester, but that was still very difficult. And um, so this is while we're traveling and everything. Now, about halfway through that, in the late 80s, uh, I, uh, my grandmother... Uh, was a remarkable woman. I think I referred to her yesterday just a prayer warrior like I, uh, very few people I've met. I, when I met Mrs. John R. Rice, I felt like I had met my grandmother again several years ago in Murfreesboro. But um, 
But anyway, she was just a remarkable woman of prayer. And so I was down in Florida and my uncle was taking care of my grandmother and she was already slipping with dementia. So I called up my uncle and I said, Uncle Bobby, I said, I'd like to see Grandma and I'd like her to pray for my wife and I, Rhonda and I, to have children. And I said, could you work out a meeting? And he, he, he said, well, he said, I could do that, Jim. But he said, can I make a recommendation? He said, I recommend that you don't see your grandmother. She is so deteriorated, she's a shell of the woman you once knew. He said, I just recommend that you remember her like, her, like she was and not see her in her deteriorated condition. But he said, I'll be honest with you, if you want to see her, I'll work it out. I said, no, I want to see Grandma. Well, I'll be honest with you, when I saw her, I was shocked, (laughs) in total shock. She was a very strong woman who walked with God, and she was a shell of the woman I knew. I sat down with her. She didn't even recognize me, had no idea who I was. And it was, she was frail. She was never frail. And it was stunning. I, it took me a while just to get adjusted to what had happened. It was a very difficult thing. But I'd come for one purpose, to get Grandma to pray, because Grandma could pray. That's one thing she could do. You felt like she had a direct line in the throne room. We all do, by the way. But anyway, I, uh, so uh, I kind of explained, I'm your grandson, Jim, your, your son's Wayne's middle son, and this is my wife, Rhonda, and explaining everything that she used to know. And then I said, you know, we've, we've even had doctors tell us we can't have children and, and we've had miscarriages and all this kind of stuff. And so uh, I said, Grandma, would you pray for us? I, it didn't look like she was getting anything, not anything. Well, she bowed her head and she prayed that my uncle said she'd forgotten almost everybody's name. She even forgot God's name, but there's one thing she could do is pray. She called him that good fellow. She had forgotten God's name, but she could still pray. That's about the only thing she could do. And and so she prayed. I don't remember a lot about the prayer. I really don't. But when she was done, she looked up at me, and God, I think, graciously let her return for seconds, just seconds. And she looked at me, and she had that twinkle, that just that grandma twinkle in her eye. And she looked at me with that little cute little smile, which hadn't seen anything. It was like deadpan. She looked at me with that cute little smile, and she said, you've got it. That was all she said. And then she returned back. And uh, I thought, whoa, that's different. And my uncle looked at me and said, well, Jim, he said, you and your wife, don't even worry about it. You're going to have kids. He said, I've never known mom to say you've got it wherever God didn't do it. So you just have to worry about kids. You're going to have them. That was 1989. Or 88. She died in April of 89, went home to heaven. And... Uh, 1995, in August of 95, my firstborn Stephanie was born. In 97, my daughter Jana was born. And in 99, my daughter Annalise was born. So three daughters. And, and uh, uh, God already knew we had a man in the house, so we didn't need any more ch- uh, boys. So, so, uh, but anyway, so uh, uh, some of you, that's why you have boys. You're trying to get a man in the house. But anyway, I'm just teasing with you. So sorry about that. I think I ruined the meeting. But, uh, but, uh, but anyway, so... Uh, that was 99. In the early 2000s, my Uncle Bobby, who was a paraplegic, had a terrible accident in his 20s, broke his back. And uh, he, uh, he lived into his 70s, which was remarkable for a paraplegic back in those days. In his early 2000s, he came up uh, to Wisconsin to see us all. And he basically said, I'm pretty sure I'm going to die in the next couple of years. I mean, he was dead serious. He wasn't ill. He, wasn't, he just said, I don't think I'm going to last very long. And I, I believe God's telling me I'm about to go home, so I'm coming up here to say goodbye. And that's what he did. Kind of a remarkable thing. And he died just a year or two later. It was not long after that. And so he came up there, and we were having a conversation. And I said, Uncle Bobby, I said, do you remember when I, uh, Grandma prayed that we'd have kids? And uh, 
Uh, she said, you got it. Uh, he said, yeah, I do. He said, did I ever tell you the rest of that story? And I said, no, I don't think you have. He said, when you kids left, you know, the, people don't call my wife and I kids anymore. But back then they used to say, when you kids left. He said, when you kids left, he said, I asked your grandmother, Mom, why did you tell the kids you got it? And my grandmother looked at uh, my uncle. I'm telling the honest truth. She said, one, two, maybe three. Remarkable, isn't it? For a woman who didn't even know her name. See, there's one thing you can learn. The body goes downhill, but the spirit doesn't. She was as spiritually in tune as she ever had been, even though her body was decaying. Here's the point, friends, I want to make. She, she knew what the will of God was. You say, man, how did she know what the will of God is? Well, if you'd have walked with God for as long as she did, she knew a whole lot of things that were will of God. Of course, let me just simply say to everybody in this room who's starting on the journey of prayer, this is how you know the will of God. You spend time in the Word of God. You spend time with God. But there are times the Spirit of God can make something clear when you don't know for sure what would God be God's will. The Bible does tell us in the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 26, uh, that uh, he, the Holy Spirit, talking about the Holy Spirit, he helps why? For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit. And all I can say about Romans 8, 26, I'm not sure I understand everything about this verse, but one thing I do understand, when you don't know what to pray for and what sure what God's will is, the Holy Spirit knows. <laughs> and he is certainly one we can ask for. If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God who giveth to all men liberty, liberally. But my point was simply this. That prayer is coming into union with the will of God. My grandmother evidently knew that she had come into union with God's will. And it was God's will for us to have children. It was God's will for us to have three. It's remarkable, isn't it? I'm simply using that illustration to help us understand that's how you get God's will. It's through prayer. Prayer is when you and I get in union with the will of God. Now, it's like this. When you and I come into union with the will of God, guess what? Satan's will is defeated and God's will is done. Now think about this. There are two wills vying for what happens on planet Earth. You know what they are? Kind of already mentioned them. You've got God's will. Anybody want to guess what the other one is? Satan. Satan's will. Sometimes people say, God's will and my will. I say, no, 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 no. Sometimes a teenager will do it this way. Hey, preacher, I, I don't want to do God's will. But there's no way I want to do Satan's will. I'm going to do my will. And you know my answer to that is, sorry, that's not an option. Because if you're doing your will, you're duped. You're actually doing Satan's will. You're just duped. See, see, the point is, you're either going to do God's will or you're going to do Satan's will. There is no in-between. There is no in-between at all. So you know what prayer does? Prayer gets us into union with the will of God. So Satan's will is defeated and God's will is done. Now, don't miss this. Satan hates every part of the Christian life. But if there's any part of the Christian life he hates more than the other, it's got to be prayer. Because prayer defeats him. Let me put it this way. Prayer takes you out of the grandstands and puts you on the field. How many of you were in high school or junior high, you played sports on some organized level? Can I see your hands, please? Okay, that's quite a few of you. Now, I'm sure all of you that raised your hands, you practiced hard, you worked hard, because you absolutely loved sitting on the bench. Right? You know, the truth is, if anybody plays organized sports, you practice for one reason, so you can play. You want to get in the game because, man alive, you want to be the hero. You know what I'm talking about? Score that point, make that block, whatever the thing is. You want to make that pass. Okay, so here's the issue, friends. Prayer takes you off the bench, out of the grandstands, and puts you on the field. 
Have you ever noticed if you're playing certain sports when you're on the field and you have the ball, you got a target on your back? What would you think if the kid here, big old kid, comes out for football, freshman comes out for uh, JV, uh, junior varsity, and he's practicing that first day, and, and after a few weeks they get into scrimmaging, and during scrimmaging they run a play, and the coach has them hand the football to you as the running back. You run left tackle, and all of a sudden the middle linebacker is about twice the big size of you meets you like a brick wall, jars every bone in your body and takes you down to the ground. And you go, that hurt. And you get up, walk off the field, say, man, I'm done. I'm not playing anymore. Man, that hurt. Now, let me just simply say this about, uh, about football. You know what happens in any kind of sports? Sometimes you end up being the target, so to speak. In hockey, if you got the puck, you're the target. And they come after you. It's just kind of how uh, sporting events uh, uh, kind of work. But here's the point I want you to understand, friends. Prayer takes us out of the passivity, out of the grandstands, and puts us in the battle. But the great thing about the battle is we're exactly where God wants us to be. We do not need to fear. The only difference is this. Satan has already been defeated. And prayer is that which comes into union so that Satan's will is done. God's, uh, is, I mean, Satan's will is, is done in the sense of it's not going to be done. And God's will is accomplished. That's the great thing about prayer. Now, let me just say a word about that target on your back because some of you might be a little worried about it. But I do want to give you an illustration that may help you remember this. Um, I know it's kind of strange, but how many remember The Far Side? It was written by a guy named Gary Larson. Yeah, okay. Some of the, yeah, he, that guy had a weird brain. I mean, I thought his stuff was largely hilarious. It sometimes took you a few seconds to get it, but it was, uh, it was just so off the wall. But one of his most famous cartoons, uh, you know, was just a one block, and there was two deer out in the field, and one of them had a big, huge target on his chest. And the other one is speaking to him. He has his mouth open. He's talking to him. The caption says this, bummer of a birthmark, Hal. <laughs> okay, some of you hunters get that. Okay, but the point is, you know, when you and I get into prayer, we got a target on our back. But I will tell you, friends, I'd rather be in the battle than in the grandstands. Because when, like I mentioned, when you're in the battle, we don't need to fear because Satan is a defeated foe. He is a defeated foe. And he cannot, he cannot harm us. He cannot do to us anything without God's uh, permission. So, but it is a battle, and you need to understand that. Uh, we're definitely engaging in a battle when we get a hold of prayer. So, uh, uh, perhaps tonight, you, we talked a little bit about prayer last night, but it was more in developing a relationship with God. Tonight, I want to emphasize the fact that prayer is getting God's will done. Now, I want you to think about something that might be a help. And I hope everybody in this room thinks about this. I love teenagers. Our ministry, a lot of times in the fall, actually in the fall, week after week, we're in Christian schools, and our team is meeting every day praying for teenagers. And I'm just telling you something. I love to pray for teenagers. And I'll pray for other kids, uh, other parents, teenagers all the time. But I can guarantee you this there is no way that my prayers can ever be as fervent and as consistent as the prayers of a mom and a dad. There's no way. I mean, I'm done with a week. I have to move on to a whole new set of kids. I'm praying for different kids, fervently. You know, your prayers for your kids, nobody can substitute. If you don't pray for your kids, nobody will pray for your kids like you do. It's just the way it is. And for you that are grandparents, nobody will pray for your grandkids like you will. 
In fact, I've asked the Lord. I don't know, you know, again, what the Lord's will is on it, but I've asked the Lord, Lord, you know what? I can't do much preaching anymore. Would you give me at least a few years so I can pray for my grandkids? You say, why would you pray something like that? Because that's what my grandmother did for me, and I'd like to return what she did for me to the grandkids God gives me. See, the point is, friends, nobody can pray for those kids like you can. See, why is that important? Because we're living in a day when the devil just seems like he's got a heyday. But you know, when you and I pray, we come into union with the will of God. Satan's will is defeated. God's will is done. And I'll be honest with you. I know there are, God had more usefulness than has occurred in my life. And I realize others have had greater usefulness than I have. But I will be honest with you. Sometimes I look at my life and say, how did that happen? And I guarantee you, one of the things I always attribute is my grandmother's prayers. It is my grandmother's prayers. That woman would pray hours a day. And I know there's many things that have happened in my life are because she prayed. I'm convinced of it. She came into union with the will of God. Satan's will is defeated. I think to myself, how do I avoid some of the garbage that was around her? I went to the Chicago Public Schools. I moved from Durango, Colorado. Another word for Durango, Colorado might be Mayberry RFD. Okay, you with me? You know what I'm talking about? I moved from Durango, Colorado. Uh, at six years old, to Chicago, Illinois. I transferred in the middle of the year from first grade in Durango to first grade in Chicago. It was one of the biggest culture shocks I think you could ever have. I was a six-year-old, and yet I knew this place is totally different. Every curse word I think I've ever heard, I heard from the lips of first grade. Some of the most foul-mouthed people I have ever known are first graders. Though there were first graders who were expelled out of my first grade class who did things that I would not even mention in a mixed audience. Some of the most wicked people I have ever known were first graders. Now, I know they got it from their parents. I get that. Okay, I'm in this, this first grade with a lot of wicked kids. I mean, foul mouths, dirty mouths, dirty jokes, the whole garbage. I'm in, in, a, in a public school. And they had a uh, fort they built out by the railroad yards. <laughs> And they plastered it with paper pornography. And they always invite me to come to that thing. I think to myself, if I'd have come to that thing, what it would have done to scar my life. I never went to that fort. You say, why didn't you go to that fort? I can't totally explain why. Number one, my mom, hey, we had a rule, you could only go a block from the house. You know, your parents' rules, young person, are there to protect you. They may not even know why they gave that rule. But God does. But I never went to that. Never one time. I think to myself, why didn't I go to that fort? Everybody else did. I'm going to tell you. It's my parents' prayers and my grandmother's prayers. I guarantee you that. They were praying like nobody's business. I grew up in a very, like I said, first through fourth grade, and then I moved out to the suburbs. In the fifth grade, I was out in the suburbs public school, and they were just as wicked as the city kids. They just had more money. That was about it. And it's remarkable that I was protected from their wickedness. Just remarkable. And I can guarantee you only one thing, prayer. When I was going into the sixth grade, I didn't even want to go back to the public school. It was so bad. I did not. I knew it was, it was eating. I mean, it was affecting me. I was concerned about it. My grandmother began to pray that same one. She began to pray that, that the Christian school my dad was starting would somehow go all the way up to sixth grade, which they were not planning on doing, but remarkably, they got enough sixth graders, six sixth graders, and they moved up to the sixth grade. It was my first year in Christian school. And I know it was an answer to my grandmother's prayer. 
I'm just telling you, friend, I wouldn't even be here preaching tonight if it was not for the prayers of my grandmother and my parents. Every grandparent, every parent in this room, I'm telling you, your prayers are absolutely more important than you'll ever know. Why? Because when you pray, you're coming to union with the will of God. So Satan's will is defeated and God's will is done. You say, preacher, are you telling me that God can't just unilaterally do what he wants to do? Well, I don't understand all the mysteries of God. But I will say it certainly seems to be that our prayers are really important in getting God's will done. That's exactly where I'm going to put it. And I will tell you, friend, I'm not sure God has a plan B. In other words, you ever thought about God's looking for an intercessor? What does the Bible say? He found how many? None. I want you to think about this for a moment. Your next door neighbor going straight to hell. You know what God, I believe, would say? I'm looking for an intercessor for that next door neighbor. Wouldn't it be sad if he said, I didn't find anybody? I started, I told you part of the story the other night, so some, or yesterday, so some of the, some of the details will be overlapped. I'm going to give you a different angle on it. There was a husband and wife and this autistic boy, and they wanted piano lessons, and they called all the music stores in the area, and none of them said, no, we don't do autistic kids. They called the uh, music store that my daughter teaches at, and they said, well, we do have one teacher that has an autistic student. And my daughter, Jana, has a very severely autistic student, and he's a phenomenal piano player, but uh, severely autistic that she works with. And um, so uh, um, they said, well, we have one that has one student. We'll ask her. Well, they asked my daughter, and it was not convenient. She had to move a lot of stuff around, but she felt the Lord was in it, and she took the second autistic student. She started teaching the student, and, and every time they'd have a lesson, mom and dad would come too, so it was like a family deal. That's all, that, it was just husband and wife and the boy, that was it, nobody else in the family, and they'd all come making a big deal. And wasn't long after that, my daughter, Jana, uh, became very burdened for that family. And I'm going to tell you something, friends. One day on her way home from the lesson, she wept the entire way home. She said, God, they can't go to hell. God, they can't go to hell. God, they got to get saved. She began to pray fervently for them to get saved. You know what happens when you pray fervently for people to get saved? You look for every opportunity you can to get them under the sound of the gospel. So she began to invite them, invited them to the Christmas program. They came. Uh, both programs came. As a result, they were in the follow-up system, and she said, Mom and Dad, could you go visit them? I'll never forget that night we went over. We'd met them at the concert, and she told us all about them. And we came over that night, as I mentioned the other yesterday, and we sat down with uh, Greta and Tom and... and um, well, actually, Tom was asleep in that time, uh, but anyway, it was the mom and the boy, and uh, my wife went through the gospel. Uh, and uh, when she was done, as I mentioned yesterday, there was a little bit of resistance, and so we didn't push, but that's when I asked her. I said, you ever heard that before? And she said, no, I've never heard that, but that's so simple. Well, we, uh, uh, she agreed to do the book of John, going to read the book of John, and about halfway through, you're supposed to come back and answer the questions, but we were going to have to leave town, and she wasn't going to be halfway through, so she was about five chapters in. And I said, we could we come by, uh, even though, because we're going to be leaving. And she said, certainly. And so we set up an appointment right for Wednesday night prayer meeting. And so we went over there. And Tom was there, the dad, and, and uh, the mom. And, and we started going through John 3, verses 1 all the way down to about 17, 18, somewhere in there. And, and it came time, I looked at Tom, I said, would you like to get saved? We'd already worked with Greta, and she kind of thought, I might be saved, whatever. So I just, because Tom, no, I'm not saved. You want to? Yes, I do. So we, we kind of went through it, and uh, had an opportunity for Tom to pray. And when Tom was done praying, I was questioning him, and my wife looked at Greta and said, did you pray when your husband prayed? She said, yes, I did, beaming brightly. 
Found out they both got saved that night. And I want to simply tell you this, friends. God was looking for an intercessor. And he found somebody. A college kid. Hey, listen, you can be 16 years old and be somebody's intercessor. I think God's looking for an intercessor for people all over White House. And you know the tragedy is? In many cases, he hadn't found anybody yet. Nobody's burdened enough to pray, God, they can't go to hell. God, you've got to work on their heart. God, you've got to do something. I want to ask you a question. Who are you interceding for? Because, my friend, we've got to come into union with the will of God. That's how Satan's will is defeated and God's will is done. That's why it's so important. Now, let me give you some Bible here, illustrations, because you might say, okay, where do you see this in the Bible? I'm going to give you two real prevalent ones. First of all, Elijah. Elijah. Okay, here's Elijah. Do you remember Elijah? I think you do. Elijah prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And you know what the Bible says? It didn't rain. Now, why in the world would you pray that it might not rain? Because you say you're living in Middle Tennessee in February. That's why you pray that it might not rain, okay? Because it's like raining all the time, okay? I got that, okay? So why would you pray that it might not rain? And the answer is because it's raining. Now, why is rain such a big deal? Here's the answer. Deuteronomy. In the book of Deuteronomy, God said this, Nation of Israel, if you get away from me, the heavens will be as brass. It's not going to rain. So, I'm using a little sanctified imagination. Here's Elijah on his knees. God, you've got a problem. God, your people have apostatized. They're into idolatry. They're worshiping Baal. And you said it wouldn't rain, but it's raining. And I, I'm, 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 please, I don't think I'm overstating it. You know what God said? Just waiting for somebody to point that out. You look at the book of Hebrews chapter 11, talking about the men and women of faith. It says, they obtained promises. You know what promises are? They need to be obtained. Listen, friend, when you raise your kids, obtain promises. Obtain promises. Because I don't know about you, before I had kids, I, man, I tell you, I wish you'd have known me back then. I was an expert on parenting. I could have told you everything you're doing wrong, what you need to do right. And then I had my firstborn step. I love Stephanie when she was born. I thought an angel had been born into our home. About it. Six months later, I thought she was demon-possessed, okay? <laughs> Every parent out here knows what I'm talking about, okay? So we had to start going after it, okay? I, I'm telling you, I thought, man, I have the dumbest kids on planet Earth. They do something wrong, I discipline them, and they do it again. I'm thinking, man, why didn't I get these kids, you know? Your kids probably do the same thing, you know what I'm talking about? Before you had kids, you ever get critical of somebody in the grocery store? Oh, man, if that were my kid today, he wouldn't be doing that. But one day when your own kids are doing it, you're thinking, what did I do wrong? Okay, obtain promises, obtain promises. Because there'll be a few years there where you're just having obtained promises and just hang on to them. But you know what I found? The word Bible is true. Hang on to those promises. Promises need to be obtained. You know what Elijah did? He obtained a promise. God, can't rain. You said it wasn't going to rain. God said, okay, just wait for somebody to pray that. You're right, it's not going to rain. He even told him how long. He tells Ahab, you know what happens? The whole thing goes in. Then 1 Kings 18, this is so interesting to me, verse number 1, God basically says to Elijah, it's going to rain. Now, if God tells Elijah it's going to rain, what does that mean? And this is what it means. There's going to be a revival. Because in the book of Deuteronomy, it said, if the people will turn back to me and deal with their sin, then the heavens will, will have rain again. So Elijah's not a dummy. He knows revival's coming. 
Revival is coming. Well, he goes to Mount Carmel with absolute confidence it was a revival coming. Was he right? You better believe it. Man, those people fall on their face. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Wow, that would have been an exciting day just to see God intervene there. What a thing. Okay, so he already knows it's going to rain. So what does he do? Go down to Walmart, buy himself a raincoat, umbrella, you know, because, boy, they'd have been on discount after three and a half years of no rain. I mean, those have been easy to get like you're in Southern California. Okay, so here it is. Is that what he did? No. What does he do? He goes to pray. Why? Because he knew something you and I don't. You've got to obtain promises. You know what I believe he was saying? God, it's going to rain now. You promised. Deuteronomy, you promised. It's got to rain now. He sends God, go see if there's, and of course, you have ridden to Mount Carmel. You'll, it's right there on the Mediterranean Sea. Went out, looked over the, nothing, nothing. Like looking over the ocean, nothing there. Did it seven times. Finally comes back. There's a cloud the size of a man's fist. And Elijah knew God has heard my prayer. Now, I want you to understand, he did not stop praying till he knew God had answered. Although he knew it was going to rain. You say, preacher, how does that work? You see, he understood something I don't think we get. Prayer is coming into union with the will of God, so Satan's will is defeated and God's will is done. He wasn't passive about it at all. He would not have been a good Calvinist. I should have said that, but, you know, he, he was on the deal, man. He was on it. And, okay, so here's another one. Daniel. One day, Daniel's having his devotions out of the book of Jeremiah, okay? Now, Jeremiah had only been written. It was under 100 years old. Can you imagine reading a book of the Bible that was not that old? <laughs> of course, that's not going to happen because it's all finished now. But here's Jeremiah, just been written a few years back, and he's having his devotions out of the book of Jeremiah. And all of a sudden, he reads that the Bible says, God says, the people are coming back after 70 years. Daniel gets excited. He gets out his Google calendar. He starts zipping through the thing. He said, it's been 70 years. So he starts packing his bags. Is that what he did? No, read it. He goes to prayer, praying. He said, well, preacher, why would you go to prayer? God said he was going to do it because promises need to be obtained. And Daniel gets on his knees and he prays and fasts. And I'll be honest with you, I don't understand everything about Daniel, but there was a huge battle going on in the heavens, a spiritual battle. And the only way that thing was won was Daniel's prayers. He was praying the thing through. And I'm telling you, uh, that's what God wants for you and I to do. He's uh, getting, uh, getting in the battle, coming to union with the will of God. So Satan's will is defeated and God's will is done. See, that's why your prayer time is important. It's getting right with God Walking with God, it's not just to enjoy his presence. It's so that you can get in the battle. And you can get God's will done on earth as it's in heaven. Now, if the Lord leads, I'll preach another message on how to pray for human beings. Because we have free wills. And, and there's a way that God te teaches us about all that. And I'll talk about that a little bit later. But my point is, it's very important in, in God getting his will done. I am telling you, friend... Uh, I don't know about you, but God wants to do miracles in our lives every day. <clears throat> Answers to prayer should not be the exception. Answers to prayer should be the norm. And answers to prayer are not just, oh, you wouldn't believe what God did for me today. It's like this. I prayed it. I know it's God's will. And therefore, I, even though I don't have the answer, I know I have the answer. I mean, just think about my grandmother. You got it. You ever done that to somebody after you prayed? How could she be so confident? Well, number one, that was not unusual with my grandmother to say, you got it. Because she knew she had come into union with God's will. 
She knew it. All I'm saying, friends, that's praying, getting in the battle. And I'm going to just say something about prayer is sometimes it is a battle. Sometimes I'm telling you, you feel like you're, like we talked about yesterday, sometimes you're in the fog. You're in just hand-to-hand combat, and it's not easy. But I've learned this. That sometimes I will get in a prayer meeting and just God breaks through and it's an easy prayer meeting and you just know you're getting ground from the devil. There's other times it's hand-to-hand combat and you're just in the middle of a battle. But I've learned, do not give up in the hand-to-hand combat. Do not give up when the fog rolls in. To use yesterday's analogy, do not give up when you're in the darkness. Prayer is a battle. And it's battling through. To come in union with the will of God. Well, let me, uh, let me just simply say, nobody, as I mentioned, nobody's prayer life in this room is unimportant. And I say that because you might be 12 years old and think, it's not that important. It actually is. 16 years old, it actually is. I, I, in revival history, I think of a 16-year-old intercessor in the Lewis Awakening. In a moment, I'm going to give an illustration of how the Lewis Awakening started, but there was a great move of God across the island of Lewis, and there began to, known a band of men who were called the Praying Men of Barvis. They were the intercessors. And one of the Praying Men of Barvis was 16 years old. His name was Donald McPhail. Duncan Campbell, the evangelist or revivalist of that amazing move of God, told the story that they were in a new community, that there had been no revival, and he brought the praying men of Barvis because he knew it was going to be a battle. One night he was preaching, and it seemed like there was nothing there. God wasn't there. There was nothing. About halfway through the message, the Spirit of God seemed to indicate, Duncan, you can stop preaching now. Why don't you call on Donald to pray? The intercessors were praying the entire service. He could see them praying, I think, near the back. Donald was in just agony. You could see it as he was wrestling with God. So he stopped the message and said, I feel led of the Lord to call Donald McPhail to ask us to stand and pray. Duncan Campbell related that Donald McPhail stood to his feet and began to pray. We're talking about a 16-year-old boy who walks with God. And all Duncan Campbell said is, all I can tell you is what I witnessed next looked like a spiritual hurricane. He said on one side of the church, these are people that were totally disinterested moments before They were hanging on the pews like they were about to drop into hell, crying out to God for mercy. On the other side of the church, their hands were lifted to heaven, crying out to God to keep them out of hell and save them. So it was a remarkable scene of the move of the Spirit of God because the answer prayers of a 16-year-old little boy. Hey, listen, 16-year-olds, I know I was going after you on Sunday morning. I'm going to tell you why. Because you can do something a whole lot more important than looking at video games if you start to get a hold of God. Not a teenager in this room who could not learn how to get a hold of God and learn how to be an intercessor for God. But prayerlessness is that limits God. It limits God. I was, um, uh, mentioned the Lewis Awakening. I'll conclude with this. But uh, the Lewis, uh, island of Lewis is, a, is a, called the land of revivals. It's just off the coast of Scotland. And In the 1800s, they had a mighty move of God in 1934, 1939, and 1949. 1935, just a little interesting side note, there was a girl that immigrated from the Lewis... Island of Lewis to New York City. We know her now as our president's mother. She's actually from this land of revivals. I don't know if she was touched by the 34 revival or not. I don't know. But nonetheless, it's a land where it just, there's a little book called Sounds from Heaven. 
It's an anthology. It's not uh, really a history. It's an anthology of eyewitnesses of Lewis revivals. It's one of the most stirring books I've ever read. And uh, it's just amazing as people tell what God did in those remarkable days. But, okay, so here it is, 1949. It had been 10 years since the last move of God. There was, some, there was two elderly sis- sisters, Peggy and Christine Smith. One of them was blind, and one of them was crippled with arthritis. These two saints of the Lord could rarely go to church. They were so infirmed. But there's one thing they knew how to do, and that was pray. So uh, they both... Um, They both got burdened about this. Now think about this for a moment. It had been 10 years since the Holy Ghost revival, and to these dear sisters, it was unthinkable that there was a whole generation of teenagers who had no idea what revival was. That was unthinkable to them. So they set themselves to praying and would set aside whole days to pray and sometimes fast and plead with God about the issue of revival to once again visit the island of Lewis. was probably in late 1949, they called their pastor over to their home, said to their pastor, Pastor, revival is coming. And I love their imagery. Here's what they said. Pastor, we were praying, and we saw the enemy retreating, and the lamb take the field. Wow, don't you just love that? And uh, in December of 1949, an evangelist by the name of Duncan Campbell, he was in his 50s, his story is remarkable in and of itself. But he came to the island of Lewis and started preaching a three-week mission. As I've looked at it, it was three revival meetings, is really what it was, three-week-long revival meetings, three-week mission. And he started in December of 1949, I hate to tell you this, but he left in 1952, <laughs> three years later. Because Holy Ghost revival spread across that island. One village after another fell to the overpowering sense of the presence of God. Remarkable move of God. Just remarkable. But I'm going to tell you why. Because two aged saints got in the prayer closet and did battle. And it was battle. Finally they came into union with the will of God knew it. And they, I, my friend, I'm not saying they saw it with physical eyes. I don't think they did. But they saw it with spiritual eyes. The enemy retreating. And the lamb take the field. Unsafe people testified in those days of revival that they could sense the presence of God. They knew God is here. It's a remarkable story. Literally, people, teenagers from that island, literally went all across the world after that revival preaching the gospel because of what God did in their hearts in the Lewis Awakening. But it started with two intercessors who came into union with the will of God, did battle with the enemy. And my friend, God's will was done, Satan's will was done. Now do you see why prayerlessness is such a big sin? It limits God. Can I ask every head bowed, please, and every eye closed? Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. (coughs) 